All right. Thank you, gentlemen. So I'm hoping that we can, uh, we can work with this verse. Do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That's the average translation in most of our English Bibles. And uh, I, I want us to work through this, look in each word. We looked at uh, bashal, the uh, word for boil, uh, last week. And we're going to do that a little again to, tonight. But uh, again... No bait and switch. No hidden agenda. My question is going to be, when you say you keep kosher, do you have to qualify that with biblical versus rabbinic? Meaning that biblical kosher is Leviticus 11. And anything beyond Leviticus 11 is therefore rabbinic kosher and maybe a higher or different standard. Was that your definition? Was that my definition of what? Uh, biblical, biblical versus... I think biblical kosher, most people... I think most people would say Leviticus 11 is your biblical kosher passage, Deuteronomy 14, same deal, right? That's biblical kosher. And if you want to add the separation of meat and dairy, then you're talking about rabbinic kosher. So are we trying to establish perhaps that separation is considered biblical? I am asking us to wrestle tonight with just that very question and to consider, are we supposed to just blow off these three verses in the Bible that obviously have to do with eating and choose to ignore them and not include them in anything referencing biblical kosher. Yes, sir. Just a, a quick precursor. I think, it, again, if, you're, if someone asks you that question, it also your response will depend on who they are. Of course. Of course. But, you know, amongst us and amongst those listening, what are we talking about? I eat kosher. That's a fact. So what does that mean? When I say that to you, what does that mean? Well, I would think that all of you would understand right away that Leviticus 11 is the primary text of which I speak. And that which God said is fit, I may eat. And that which God said is unfit, I don't even call food. I don't know what to call it in our language, but it ain't food. But my point is, if you say that to a... Absolutely. And and again, so we're talking about our audience because we need to wrestle with these three verses that are identical. So I'm not going to waste time on, well, what do you think they mean? And what does it mean to you? I don't really care what it means to you, and I don't really care what you think it means. Let's walk through the text. Do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Last week we went through Bashal, and I gave you at least five examples, one, two, three, four, five, six, that this word is translated variously in the English Bibles as bake, boil, cook, ripen, roast, and seethe. So the bottom line is it's to add heat in most cases, other than ripen, I would suppose, although to ripen normally takes some heat, so that this does not necessarily mean boil. Yes, sir? In modern Hebrew, 
Levachel is to cook. Exactly. So it's it's the exact same word. Right. So maybe we can just retranslate this verse to say, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. That would be a perfectly acceptable translation in our English Bibles today. And I hope there's no one here that is taking offense at me questioning the translation usage in our English Bibles. That's why we should just all learn Hebrew. Well, I mean, (laughs) we recognize that the Bible is inerrant, infallible, and inspired. But that's in the original language. The translators, and we can demonstrate, no matter which side of the fence, if you're King James only and they took out the blood and New American Standard or NIV or whatever, whatever your flavor is, I think we can demonstrate from the original Greek or the original Hebrew that the translators always have a bias. And I would go so far as to say that most of them have a bias and either A, don't realize it, or B, are not trying to deceive anyone. So if we even give them the benefit of the doubt, I think we can all agree that in our English translations, we may be led astray simply because we may no longer agree with that translation team. Sure. In a translation. But, it, so if we were to take that literally, you know, does that mean that, you know, if I, if I can, if I bring the water just right up, not, not to a boiling temperature, right below, have I not violated this particular prohibition? Or, or I, would, I would make it even easier. If I fill a pan with goat's milk and I put some goat steaks in it and stick it into the oven and bake it. Can I bake a kid in its mother's milk? Or can I bake a kid in not its mother's milk? Uh, Well, we're getting there. We're not on the milk part yet. But yeah, exactly right. So that's what we're going to look at. And it's a young goat. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Time to look at the young goat. If we look at Gedi, uh, the word for young goat... Um, it's interesting. Uh, here's all your references in the Torah. Um, go to the flock and bring me two young goats. Genesis 29, uh, 27. Who said that? What'd you say? That's, that's impressive, Tim. Yes. Yes. Rachel said that. Again, later, and the skins of young goats she put on his hands. What's happening here? What are, what's she doing with those goat skins? She's disguising Isaac to deceive her husband Isaac. That's exactly right. Genesis 38, you know this one, right? I'll send you a young goat from the flock. Let me have some nookie, right? Who's this one? All right, everybody's looking at me like, nookie in the Bible? Are you kidding? Yeah, it's Tamar who's dressed up as... A prostitute, yes. And who's just walked up and thought she looked pretty fine? Judah, right. So later on, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, what was his friend? Adula, right? The Adulamite, right? Um, the guy couldn't find him. So he comes back and says, I couldn't find him. And Judah replied, uh, let her have the, uh, the stuff. I did send this young goat. Well... Well, what do we learn from this? If we look here and at the other references, 
What does Gedi mean? Is it a goat? Or is it a young goat? Yes. Or does it just mean young? A young animal. Say again? Strength. Why would, uh, why would the Hebrew actually add an extra word for goat if that's not what it meant? The Septuagint translates Gedi with Aaron, or actually Arain, which actually is a lamb. Philo of Alexandria and the Shulchan Aruch all, both, translate this as well as Gedi as cattle, sheep, and goats. It's basically any animal from the herd. It's exactly. It's an, a young animal from the herd. Well, then why do we use Gedi? Why, why don't we use something else? I mean, it, it evidently does mean a herd animal. Something from the flock. So, maybe it has to do with the fact that it's the most prevalent milk-giving animal in that culture. If I go over to your house and ask for a glass of milk, what are you going to give me? A glass of milk. From what? Cow. From a cow. Why? Because in our culture... The vast majority of people are drinking cow's milk, not goat's milk. And if I were to ask you for giving meat, most of the time in this culture, I'm asking mm. you to give beef. Beef. That's exactly right. Not that's, goat that's meat. That's the most common form of meat. Exactly right. In so culture, the common form of meat was goat. Absolutely. So the whole idea here is why Gedi? It's a word that can mean any of those, but is translated primarily as goat because in their culture, that's what it was. Goats produce milk longer than any other of the uh, animals that they had in that time, you know, the sheep and whatnot. Sheep only four months, the goats can do it for six months. So it makes sense. Proverbs 27, 26 and 27, you've got enough goat's milk for your food. Even in the Tanakh, we see that the goat was the primary source of milk, not cows, not cows. So it really starts to weaken the whole concept of focusing only on the goat, young. Is it, is it young or is it? Any reference having to do perhaps with the fact that the goats were normally slaughtered when they were young? Right. Typically, even in our culture, even though in this particular country we don't eat a lot of lamb or goat, but when we do, we're eating lamb. Yep. We're not eating sheep. That's right. Because that gets tough. Otherwise, you end up with mutton. Right? All right. 
Exodus 21:28 says, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Now, keeping in mind what Paul said about the not muzzling the ox and referencing the fact that we need to pay a worker for his, his time working, do you, do you believe that this is teaching that if a goat or a lamb gores a man or woman to death, that there is no recompense whatsoever for the person who's been gored to death? That's not what that means, is it? This is a, a great example of being hyper-literal with the text. Um, this is, you know, this is a, a, one of the most famous of which is, is Yeshua. This is my blood, take and drink. You know, can you, if, if you see that outside of context, we might suppose Christians are cannibals. Similarly, uh, this is my flesh, eat it. You bet. Uh, so th- I think this is a great example of being um, hyperliteral with the text and also needing the necessary background information. What should I glean from this? A concept. A principle. Right. A concept of truth and recompense if based on the Torah. And damages your property, I got to make it right. There it is. Does everyone agree? Is there anyone that thinks that this is strictly only for an ox? Well, no, but I was going to say, this is beyond from property. This is personal. Well, personal injury. Personal injury. My property causes personal injury. To yeah. Right. Or, or death in this case. Yeah. All right. So, so we agree that if, if a dog bit the guy, the Torah is teaching here that there needs to be some recompense, right? Okay. So when we see ox in a hyperliteral translation, it may mean only ox to us. Same thing with, uh, with the goat. Um, but in fact, uh, based on all the references to Gedi and the cultural setting, you literally could translate our three verses, do not cook meat in its mother's milk. Right? I'm sorry? How? I just went from Gedi and demonstrated that it can mean any young animal. And we just referenced the fact that the ox didn't mean just the ox, but it's talking about specific animals goring or causing pain. I don't see how it's a joke. Why do you think it's a joke? Because that's not what it says. It doesn't say meat. I, and I think I'm trying to point out that Gedi does not mean goat. It's used, in fact, to not mean goat right. in several occasions. In, in 21st century eyes, it'll say you know, goat, but you have to take those glasses off. And you have to take I guess I need, to see, I, I need to see other references. There's only 16 in the entire Bible. And the references in the Septuagint don't use goat. So if we're going to use the Septuagint as a Rosetta Stone to figure out what it means then goat is definitely not the right word because the Septuagint translates it as lamb. Those are two entirely different animals. So, it's in the context, just like you could say that uh, you know, like a, a hippopotamus has a calf and a cow has a calf. Yes. You call it a calf. Yes. But still one is a hippo and the other is a cow. No question. But I think that's exactly what I'm talking about, Ken, is the context. And in the context, 
Getty doesn't mean goat. It actually means young animal. Check the context on all 16. I can't give it to you right now, but that's what I did. All 16. So, anyway, take that with a grain of salt then and see. Um, it's interesting that Septuagint wouldn't choose goat, and I'm surprised at that. Um, Philo's translation of these three verses is very similar to what the uh, Targum Jonathan came up with, and I'll show you that in a minute. And I think you'll be um, surprised then that there's not a single sage prior to the master, not one, that defined this as goat, ever. Not one. So, we step along. We'll see. If you don't agree, that's fine. How about the in the milk phrase? This in word could actually be with, so it could be with the milk. Yeah, those prepositions have multiple meanings, just like the buff. Exactly. So, so here it could be in the meat, milk, or it could be with the milk, or it could be on the milk. Right? Usually it's translated as with in the modern Hebrew. In this case, uh, the milk word, kalev, is just as easily yogurt or cheese or any dairy product. So now we're really struggling with, it does it, should it really say in the milk? 1 Samuel 17, 18. Can someone read that to me? I didn't write it down. First Samuel 17, 18. What do you got? Can you got it? Give it to me in a good translation now. Nothing, nothing weird, right? 17, 18. First, first Samuel 17, 18. What are you going all over the internet to get this? Come on. I got it. I got it. Now, what does it say? And bring these ten cheeses to the captain of the thousand. Inquire after the welfare of your brothers and obtain a report of their welfare. Hmm. Bring these ten cheeses. Who's, who is being told to bring these ten cheeses? Jesse said to his son David. How about that? That's a pretty big famous guy. Well, that's exactly the same word. Yes? Chalab is the same word for cheese and mark. That's exactly right. Also, um, it's interesting... Just look at reading this verse from the beginning of chapter seven, uh, of verse 17. Uh, it says, take this ephah of toasted grain and these ten loaves of bread. Here you have ref- reference to the, the grain of the bikarim just before the, the dairy, just like we have in 2319 and the other ones as yeah, well. Yeah, that's good. So, you know, milk is really not a good translation uh, for that. Really, it's dairy. It's any dairy product. That's what chalav really is. So do not cook meat in its mother's dairy. That's weird. That's, that's extremely weird. So let's take a look at, at mothers. Um, the, uh, the daily practice of milking dairy animals makes it clear that there are some animals that give milk and there are some that don't. Can you milk a chicken? So, this is what this is obviously referencing. Can I cook a goat in someone else's milk? I mean, let's, let's think about it. So, I'm milking my goat, and I've got I've to keep this milk separate from that, milk's, that goat's milk, because I can cook this guy in that guy's milk, 
and this guy in this milk, but I can't cook this guy in this milk. Is that what the text is teaching us? Is that, I mean, is that the whole idea? I've got, to, I've got to keep the milk separate. That's not, I've been to dairy farms. That's not how it works. You milk this thing, whatever it is, goat, lamb, rice, uh, rice whatever, you know, whatever it may be, cow. Yeah, I milked it. I milked Betsy, and I move on to Bertha, and it's going in the same pail. I'm pouring all the milk into one bucket. So really, when we're talking about cooking a goat in its mother's milk, is it really trying to teach us that we need to keep the milk separate from each animal so that we know that we don't violate this? I mean, you can cook a goat in someone else's milk. That doesn't seem to be the concept here. Um, this implies uh, a species that produces milk, doesn't it? I mean, I can cook this meat in milk because it doesn't have a mother that produces milk, I think would be a legitimate thing to look at. You might not have a fence there, but that would be legitimate. Well, then, uh, I think what part where we could go at this point in the discussion is to the fowl, which we eat. Let's wait on the fowl. We're coming to the fowl. The turkey and the chicken. We're coming to the fowl in a minute. So we're talking about species that produce milk. Our fowl don't. So... That genericizes it even more. The sages looked at the context of these three verses, specifically the, the one in Deuteronomy, and they said, see, we're, we're talking about an animal that dies of itself. You can't, you can't eat that. You can give it to this guy, you can give it to that guy. And don't boil a young kid in its mother's milk. So you, they use the context of those two together to determine that the kinds of animals that were talked about in the first were referenced in the second. So they used it contextually and came up with, you shall not eat anything that has died naturally, and therefore you shall not cook meat in its mother's milk. So they're, they're using them in tandem. So the types of animals that would be prohibited if dying naturally must be the same types of animals described by Gedi. Not just goat, any animal that's prohibited if dying naturally. And specifically, the Torah limits the scope of the second piece by saying in its mother's milk to limit it to only those that provide milk for human consumption. And that was from Yeah, the last one. Whatever, I don't know if it's 12, 14... So that's where the sages got it in context. So they're using the fact that the third reference to this phrase references those animals that die naturally. Okay? So looking at the uh, sages in context leads you to the whole chicken and dairy question and what is true biblical kosher. Because if you agree with the sequencing that we've just done, then biblically, you would not eat meat cooked in dairy. The sages, not knowing what to do with poultry, threw it into the same category and said, well, you know what? 
Chickens don't give milk. Well, we're going to put them in the same category and build that fence so we don't mess up. And that was the argument when the master got on the scene. It was not, should we separate? They'd been separating for years. The question was, what do we do with the chicken? Can you have chicken McNuggets? Chicken McNuggets are made by dipping the chicken in a dairy thing and then fry it up. You can't do that if you follow the rabbis in their kosher law. But biblically, since chickens don't produce milk, that would be okay. Does everybody understand that? It's the rabbis that say the chicken in dairy doesn't cut it. But biblically, you have a tough time coming up with that because the chickens don't produce milk. So I think we found here a true biblical kosher that would include separating meat and dairy, but not necessarily poultry. Yes, sir? The chicken and the other poultry, the fowl, uh, that had been apparently, in my understanding of this, uh, have been an ongoing discussion even beyond the days of the master. Oh yeah. And such, so much so that it was, you know, over here that it was determined. Okay, yeah, you can eat these things. Are they considered meat? Well, there wasn't like a definitive yes or no. Yeah, like there was a yes or no right down here. Let me tell you that right now. Yes. Right here, the question in the master's day between Halal and Shammai was. Not, can we eat chicken with dairy? The question was, we, we already have determined we can't eat poultry and dairy together. The question in their day, right as the master hit the scene, was, can we put poultry on the table at the same time that the dairy's still there? That was the question. Who do you suppose said, Halal or Shammai said, yeah, you can put it on the table, just don't eat them together. Halal? Yeah, it was Shammai. Shammai. Halal's normally the lenient guy. Halal's normally the guy the master was with. Halal said, not a chance. Don't you dare put that poultry on the table with the dairy. Wow. Holy cow, really? Yeah. That's amazing. So I want to make sure we're clear here. So let's, uh, let's see if we can summarize a little bit. If that's what it means, don't cook meat in dairy, and again, you may disagree. You may think it only means don't cook goat in dairy. Fine. I, I would argue with you. If that's the case, how do you explain Targum Yonatan? Here's an Aramaic translation of the scriptures. From the, from the Master's Day. Yes. yes. Thou shalt not eat flesh with milk. It doesn't get any more generic than that. That's for all three of our, fra- our phrases. They are identical in Targum Yonatan. So, so then that would include then, I would have to say, uh, poultry. The question in the Master's Day, right before the Master, Halal and Shammai, was not, should, can we eat poultry and dairy? They had already determined that years before. The answer is no. No flesh, no meat with dairy. The question was, okay, Since the chicken falls in this weird category, since it doesn't produce milk, can we put it on the table with the dairy? 
And Hillel said no. But is it not true that the Targumim is not a translation? It's a commentary. Yes, it is a commentary based on prevailing halakha, on prevailing halakha and understanding. It's biased on that prevailing halakha. Absolutely, it is biased. There's no question, and I am so glad it's biased because one of the, some of the greatest comments we have about Messiah come right from Targum Yonatan. So I, I don't think we can just completely discount it because we don't like what he says when we like what he says about Messiah. I'm not saying we completely discount all of his arguments. What I'm saying is that it does have a bias. There is no question. It is a translation into Aramaic. I'm just saying that we love Targum Yonatan most of the time. Everything the guy says we love because he's lifting up Messiah and tying those cool things together. Here... He's tying stuff together. None of us want to hear. And it's tough. How about the Samaritans? These guys are cool. The consumption of meat and milk together is forbidden. That's what the Samaritans said. That was how they lived. Amazing. Where do you suppose they got that? Temple offerings. Leviticus chapters 1 through... Yes, sir? Um, I'd have to write, look it up, but I will get it for you. Yeah, that's right. It's those people, those half breeds. Temple offerings, Leviticus chapters one through five. We're about to read those. We're going to read about all those temple offerings. Where's the dairy offering? Don't don't you think that's kind of noteworthy? There's two things. Started separating about a year and a half ago, and the two things that, that that ultimately convinced me was the right thing to do. The first one, which we could touch, touch on last week, was the fact that the the master kept the halakha, which so if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. But this this was the other thing that when I when I came to the realization that oh yeah, there is never any mention anywhere of any dairy brought into the temple uh, because the temple was a place where there was a lot of barbecue. You know, yeah. But there was zero, zero dairy. That is obviously not by accident. You bet. I think it's interesting that the temple sacrifices are all about death in order that we might have life and that we might enter in. And you know what? This doesn't prove anything, but it should definitely make your eyebrows go up and make you think, my goodness. And I also think it's interesting that um, in, back in Exodus 23, when we're talking about the three pilgrimage festivals, yes. and, it's, and for Bikarim, the Torah says, the, cho- the choicest first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of your God. You shall not cook a kid in his mother's milk. I think it's the, the reason that they're right next to each other. I mean, if if I if I am put back in this time, I have a dairy farm. I don't I don't have sheaves of grain. Right. The rest of what my land would be is meat. Is meat. Well, that or the milk. Right. So those are the only two things you're producing. Exactly. And God said very clearly that here, at least, those are separated. And if I'm going up to the house of Adonai, and as you said, it's a it's a place where meat is barbecued then here we have a distinction between what someone can and cannot bring within the temple context. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, sir? So then it's what you had said about uh, the sacrificing 
representing death, then milk, on the other hand, would represent life. And so it's an it, issue. It is a universal right. sign, if you will, or picture of life. Nourishment. I mean, that's, you know, that's what you give young. Even the Bible uses it. Paul uses it uh, yeah. with those that he says should already be on, uh, on the meat and not on the milk. It's interesting that Paul's reference makes it clear that it's one or the other. You're never on both the meat and the milk. But I digress. In Yeshua's day, separation of meat and dairy was absolutely standard practice. There is no question. It didn't happen right around when he was born. It didn't happen when he was like 29 and oh gosh, here we are stepping into ministry and they're separating now. It wasn't like that. They'd been separating for decades. Make note that the master made no objections to the separation of meat and dairy. Not one. It's an argument from silence. I recognize that. But he was real good about speaking up about what he didn't like. There was no objections from the master. There were no accusations from his detractors that he mixed meat and dairy and therefore broke the halakha. Not once. There are no examples where he mixed meat and dairy, in fact, quite the opposite. And then finally, we've already discussed that he had meals with Pharisees or Proshim on a regular basis. We know they separated, and he obviously separated when he was with them. It's interesting that uh, you'd, you'd question whether he would be invited uh, if, he, if he broke their halakha in any way at all. Finally, we look at uh, Abraham and his three guests, and we talked about this before uh, in Genesis 18.8. Can somebody read that one to me? This is, uh, this is famous. This is where I was. This is what I was doing before my family started separating meat and dairy. And uh, I, I use this one um, as my reason for not separating until, uh, until a troublemaker showed up at my table. Go ahead, bud. What do you got? Read it loud now. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he, and he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. So he took butter and milk and the calf that he had dressed for them and they did eat. And he watched them as they did eat. These three guests turn out later, uh, we see from context, to be actually... Adonai himself, Yodhevavhe, and uh, to, evidently, to uh, Malachim or angels. Um, recognize that it takes time to prepare a kid to be eaten. And if you're from New York like I am, you may not realize how long that is. But I can tell you one thing if you've got to cut the animal's throat, but not its trachea, so you're getting both those arteries, but not as trachea, so it can continue to breathe. And you wait for it to pump out all its blood as it kind of falls asleep. And then you've got to cut up this dead animal. Hang it, drip it, and then cut up the animal into the various pieces parts. That's before you can even... I tell you what, if you guys are coming over for dinner and we're going to grill steaks, I got at least a half hour because I got to get the steaks that my wife has prepared and put into the marinade out of the fridge, 
light the fire, heat the grill, throw them on, and then cook them. I got a half hour from the time you say, we're ready to eat. How much time do I have if I want to put together some cheese and some honey, some other little nosh items? What do we call those? Appetizers. That's what I'm going to give you while I'm grilling. Eat the cheese, have a glass of wine, relax a little bit. I'm going to go grill. When I'm done grilling, we'll come in and then we'll have dinner. That would be consistent with the order that you read first, the milk and the cheese, and then the kid, which he prepared and cooked. Yes, sir. Um, this is good for two points. Uh, the first of which is that we have to realize, okay, uh, took the calf and dressed it and set it before them. That took all of about two seconds to say. Yeah. But... And we just glaze right over that as we read it. But then we have to realize in our minds, we have to imagine these things taking place. That's where this, the time to prepare comes in. It's, it's like, okay, what exactly did all of that mean? Okay. And then the second part is that, yes, it does give an order, ambiguous, I mean, uh, arbitrary or not, butter, milk, calf. Uh, so here it does say, Dairy comes first, but I would say that it's this this passage can be used one way or the other because we're absolutely we're, we're ambiguous with regard to time. Absolutely, that, that's, that's that's the big thing when it comes to separation. So you're going to eat your your cheese. You got the half an hour according to whatever halakha. You got you eat your meat. You got three to five hours according to whatever halakha. So, um, so my, my, we're not given enough information to use this. To, to, to argue for or against. Yeah, my, my point is not to argue for or against. My point is to notice the order of the courses. Absolutely. No question. It seemed to be in the order that is laid out. Yes? And just to... I, I agree wholeheartedly with Johnny's comments, but just one other... One other thing uh, as, as, as I repeat this, because again, like many of us, you know, my my position once upon a time was, well, gee, if God ate a cheeseburger, then I can't. It's good for me. Right. He had the cheese on the table. He had the kid that was prepared. Got a couple of pitas, a couple of slices of cheese, a couple of pieces of meat, another couple of slices of cheese, a nice glass of wine. Looks like a nice meal for me under the oaks of memory. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, just, again, the, the logic in my opinion, would say, as you've already pointed out, even if you're proficient at, at kosher slaughter an animal, you're still, no matter how you slice it, you're still, <laughs> you're st- that's still a couple hour process yeah. at, at best. Yeah, so they're, they're hanging out for the afternoon. And what we know about Abraham from other, from other passages is we know that I mean, he is noted as being a great uh, host and a great and, and generous and hospitable. Fact, yeah, yeah. At Sukkot, we pray that, you know, may we be like Abraham, right, who was always in, having people come into his tent, right? Yeah. So, it, so, with what we know about Abraham and with just applying just regular logic here, 
uh, it's unlikely that Abraham made his guests wait, you know, two or three hours until it was all prepared in order to give them anything. Yes. The, the cheese, or the cheese there would have, I mean, the, uh, depending on your translation, that says cheese. Uh, it was it was curds, you know, because in that culture, I mean, they didn't have refrigeration. You didn't really drink. Uh, yeah, you chewed you your milk. Liquid milk that often. You did, it was warm. Milk. Yeah, you're you're chewing the milk, not drinking it. <laughs> so they typically wouldn't let it curdle because it had a longer shelf life. Yeah. So if we know that Abraham is hospitable and known for his hospitality, then. I just, you know, again, we can't prove one way or the other from right. the text, right. as Johnny pointed out. But it seems <laughs> unlikely to me that he would have had his guests sit there for, you know, a couple hours, even if it's an hour, whatever it is, yeah. and not give them anything. I tell you what, yeah, my, my wife is like the hospitality queen, right? <laughs> she's dying if I'm taking 45 minutes to grill you guys some steaks. You know, she's coming out there going... Uh, did we run out of gas? What's the problem? You know? Can you imagine? Here come the Uppos. Hello, Uppo family. Glad you're here. <laughs> yeah, see, that, that's the one we're going to have for dinner here. <laughs> How long is that going to take? Oh, my goodness. Do, what do, you, do you have to take the hair off that thing before you go? No, nah, I don't know. You know. <laughs> I should have brought a sandwich. Yeah, that's right. All right. I think the... Uh, the, the bottom line here, as uh, Ryan was pointing out, is that uh, it really comes down to the life and death thing. I, to me, that's, that's the biggest deal, right? Um, a separation here between that picture of life and picture of death. I just did a whole class a couple of weeks ago on separation and how it is so important to God. And there is separation constantly and that we need to separate. We need to separate ourselves from the world. We need to separate ourselves through our walk and our keeping of the commandments such that we are set apart and our walk brings glory to God. So, yeah. Um, I think the best translation for this particular phrase, when all is said and done, is do not cook red meat in dairy. That's where I'm coming from. I'm, I'm going back to uh, I'm going back to Chick Fil A. That's that's, uh, that's my bottom line. I don't think you need to separate the uh, the uh, poultry. Now, of course, that's not what I'm going to do. Um, but I think, in my mind, uh, and again, your mileage may may vary, but I think that my perspective on biblical kosher is now going to include generically separation of meat and dairy. I think it needs to so that I stop ignoring these three imperatives. Now, I know I've said before, when God says something three times, we should pay attention to it. And someone always gives me a flippant answer like, shouldn't we listen to God when He says something once? Yeah, we should. Uh, But I also know that in Hebrew, if something's repeated more than once, it's to indicate its importance. And when I find three verses in the Bible that are absolutely verbatim in the Hebrew, in the original text, I think I need to do something with them. So, to me now, biblical, like like Greg's always saying, 
today, my current view is that biblical kosher would mean that you don't, that you obviously only eat what God said we can eat, and I will not cook red meat in dairy. I think to say that we will not cook any meat in dairy would be rabbinic kosher. You may argue with me. That's okay. That's where I'm at today because I think we've got a pretty good understanding of what these three texts mean. You may pick out any one of those words and you may change this to say, do not boil red meat in dairy or do not cook goat in dairy, but you can cook beef in dairy or do not cook goat, but you can cook lamb in dairy or something like that. Um, hey, as long as you're doing something with these three texts, I think you're better off than I was when I just totally ignored them and said, I have no idea what these mean. Therefore, I'm not going to deal with them until I have some clue. I got a clue now, and I think it was poor of me to just overlook them um, in the past because I didn't understand them. I think it's such a poor example for the rest of my biblical interpretation. Like, I don't need to be obedient if I don't understand. That's heresy. I don't need to be obedient until I've got a good reason to. That's stupidity. I don't need to be obedient if it's inconvenient. That's a man who doesn't know God. I do know him. I want to please him. I got to tell you, pulling out the bacon, pulling out the jumbo shrimp, piece of cake. Nothing to it. Do I miss the bacon cheeseburger? To be honest with you, can't really remember. It's been that long. Cheeseburger? Hadn't been that long. Yeah. I went to, uh, I went to a class this past Sunday and uh, sat through hours and hours to become an uh, NRA certified range safety officer. And uh, we broke for lunch and they provided lunch. So here's all these cool looking sandwiches and uh, I had previously requested to know what they were going to provide so I would need to know if I needed to provide my own food because their food wasn't food. <laughs> uh, but in fact, they had the roast beef, they had the turkey, and they had the ham. So I went right off the bat for the turkey croissant, threw that on the plate, grabbed two spoonfuls of the mustard so I could dip, sat down with my bag of chips and my bottle of water. And I picked up that croissant with the turkey and the white cheese on the bottom and the white cheese on the top and the lettuce sticking out. And I got it up towards my mouth and I realized it had cheese on it. So I sat it down and I guess I had been so reactive in my motion that the guy next to me said, is there something matter with that sandwich? I said, yeah. Holy cow, it's got cheese on it. So I pulled the cheese off, made the sandwiches you know, two halves back up again, and I put the sandwich, the, the cheese pieces together and dipped them in the mustard and ate the cheese and chatted with him. And he goes, you, you're not allergic to cheese? 
I said, no. And he goes, are you allergic to turkey? <laughs> no, no, no. Can't mix meat and dairy. And he goes, oh, you got an allergy? I said, no, I got... I looked at him and I said, uh, he's Catholic, and I said, uh, no, I'm, I'm in a new relationship. <laughs> this is what we do. And he goes, really? I thought, wow, that's the coolest answer I've given in a while. I finished my cheese, I'm happy with myself, you know, I chewed down my turkey and finished the class, passed, thank you very much. Get home. I was so, so thank you. I was so proud to tell my wife. I said, uh, "Sweetie, I, I did remember to take the cheese off of my turkey croissant." And she goes, "Sweetie, next time, take the turkey off the sandwich and eat the cheese with the uh, lettuce on the croissant, and then have the turkey." And I said. Why is that? And she goes, because the croissant is all butter. Right. It's dairy. <laughs> well, yeah, it did, but you know what? I gave her the traditional Christian response. God knows my heart! <laughs> and her response, but he's looking in your belly. Yeah, she got me. So, comments? It's a... At, at our point in, in Kashrut, uh, being that we live in the, the barren wasteland, as it were, of the the, the nether world, the nether world, the, we are between the places, as they say. That we are, um, being that that's the case. That's our reality. Uh, it is going to, at times, be unavoidable that we make a mistake, we, oh my God, you know, or, or somebody prepares your food slightly incorrectly or something. There's one little minuscule detail that we miss. And, and it's, um, to your point, it is, we do know that, that God knows where our heart is, but I have a really cool article from Chabad of all places about, and, and, and it is the, quest, the question of the week is, what happens if I eat something non-kosher? And the response is just, just as gracious as it comes. It's incredible. And, and they, they say as well, since you were obviously eating this, you would, you would want to abstain from this for a while, you know, from just to make sure that you completely understand, okay, that's, that's not part of it, you don't want to be deriving pleasure from it, and, and that um, ultimately uh, you're, you're, it's not like a, you're going to hell because you broke this commandment kind of thing, but in order to really put the emphasis back on God instead of ourselves, um, to you know, just set us a, set us set some time, uh, set a length of time to say, okay, I'm not even gonna. I blew it on that. I'm gonna give it some time. Yes, Johnny. Why is it not quote unquote like I'm gonna go to hell because I did this? Well, because we're human, we're gonna make a mistake. That's not the right answer. I messed up. Why is it like I'm not going to go to hell? Come on, Tim. Church answer. Jonathan. You paid the price for that one too. 
not going to hell by for <laughs> disobedience. He'll go to hell if, if we can use that word. That uh, don't get don't get tweaky with me. You got it. Tell me what the deal is. This is it's uh, a righteous man stumbles seven times but still gets up. And, this is, and, and, and Johnny's right. It is unavoidable, and it is one thing that um, that I think putting the emphasis back on God is a great thing. God will bring sins up in your own life as a way to get your attention on something. Absolutely. I'm still looking for something, Chris. Come on, Ken. If this injunction truly falls within the realms of Kashru. That's the first answer I wanted. If you eat something that's not clean, that's not food, it has nothing to do with sin. It's not sin, it's stupid. Why? Because it doesn't set you apart. But as soon as the sun goes down, and possibly with a mikvah, depending on what it was, you eat a whole cow, um, you're fine. But that's not the answer, guys. To someone who's not even considering kosher or keeping the commandments, why does it not have to do with salvation? Because the Torah is not for salvation. The Torah never was for salvation. It has nothing to do with burning in hell. It never did. And it never will. My keeping or not keeping the commandments has nothing to do with my salvation. I'm keeping the commandments because I've got a relationship with the king of the universe. I'm already in his good grace. Why? Because of me? Are you nuts? Have you not met me? It's not because of me. Who is it because? Yeshua HaMashiach. Because of what he did, not what I did or will do. Nothing to do with it. Oh, I ate some meat and dairy. I'm gonna burn in hell. Please pray me out of purgatory. Are you? What are you drinking? You know the bottom line is, quote Hebrews: the blood of bulls and goats could no, never, never take away sin. And there is no condemnation to those who are in Messiah Yeshua. That's the bottom line, guys. This is not salvific. This is not a go to hell issue. This is, what does the commandment say? Now, I'm going to close out with a personal comment. You may disagree with me. You may not like what I say. I don't care. I personally believe that your holiness is gauged by your obedience to God's commands. You may disagree. But your level of holiness, that is how much you are set apart, how much you are different than the world, is all based on your keeping of His commandments. And that's the only reason He gave them. That you might be, in our vernacular, different. Amen. Now, holy as He is holy is pretty incredible because he's so different, he's so other than us, that it demands scrupulous attention to detail. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly where I was going. If you keep Shabbat, God bless you. And he will. Because he has no choice. He promised he would. And he can't deny himself. 
if you recognize what he said we should and should not eat, God bless you. Drive on. Personally, I am convinced now that I do need to separate my meat from my dairy. And in this house, we do that. It turns out that it's a royal pain in the neck if you want to do both at the same meal. Especially if I want to be sensitive to those who are doing it and have a stricter halacha than I do. Joe may come over. He's separating meat and dairy. and I don't know if he is, I'm just saying. And he's separating meat and dairy. And he comes over. And it turns out that when he has dairy, he doesn't eat meat for 30 minutes. The minimum halacha is I can eat the dairy. Then I eat something parv, which is neither meat nor dairy. Rinse the mouth. Ready for the steak. He waits 30 minutes. Well, now, you know, dinner's going to be 30 minutes longer. Because I'm going to defer to his halacha, not mine. But I want to encourage you. To be honest with you, I don't really care whether you keep this separation or not. But I really don't want to see you eating shrimp, bacon, stuff like that. I think that's a problem. I think it's a bad testimony. And if you want to talk about that privately, I'd love to sit down and chat with you. I think that this falls into exactly the same category. Otherwise, you've got three verses that you can't tell me how you're dealing with in your life. And I think you should wrestle with them and at least tell me, I'm going to do this. valid interpretation of a command of God, why would you not be concerned? Why would you be concerned if we're eating? Which is a prohibition and not separating if you believe that that's a valid prohibition. That, that is a great question and I appreciate it. Um, and, and the reason for that is if you want to argue whether or not swine should be on your menu, you, you're talking to the wrong guy because I'm going to tear you up and spit you out. When we get to this, I think there's a really good argument. Not just that it was halacha long before the master, that the master kept it, that the text is very serious, that we've got other cultures, biblical cultures in the area, and we've got uh, the uh, sages saying it. But... I recognize that people are moving at their own pace. So right now, I'm going to cut you some slack. If you don't think that this is the correct interpretation of those three verses, then I would expect you to be diligent to come up with another explanation for those three. That's all. Does that make sense? I'm not saying I think it's okay. And I think to Greg's point, though, that I think he's just... and. Are, are you saying that it's just because of an, the explicit nature of Leviticus 11 and, and Deuteronomy 14 versus, to, versus our three verses in question tonight and how they're not as... Crisp. They're not as clearly defined. Yes. You, know, you have to dig. We had to, you know, it took you a little over an hour to go through that and explain that to us. Yes. And so it's... And, you know, while it is... Well done and supported from the Hebrew, and you know we have other 
extra-biblical texts that support it, um, it's still not, this is exactly what it is, right, straight from the text. Um, you know, it doesn't clearly say, you know... Uh, don't you know, cook lamb, red meat in dairy. Yes, don't, don't let, I mean, it doesn't say, like, you know, swine is detestable to you. That's, that's pretty clear. Um, in the English. A, there's a little, you know, fudge room. The only reason I see any fudge room is because the English is terrible. Absolutely. And I think the only reason the English is terrible is because I don't know a single translator who keeps kosher, let alone any who separate meat and dairy. So I've, I've got people translating Hebrew into English that don't have any idea about this. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think the English Bible is our biggest stumbling block here. But, again, I'm not... I'm not saying it's not scriptural. I'm just saying that if you bump into me, I'm expecting that you're certainly going to be keeping the dietary laws of Leviticus 11 right now. And if you're not, I'm going to call you on it, and I'm going to ask you why you're not, as I would expect that you would do the same to me. When it comes to this, I'll give you time. I, I needed time. But then I think we need to, again, let's, let's be honest with the text. The bottom line here is, if there are things that we recognize are ridiculously translated into English, in some cases, or in some books of the Bible, let's say Hebrews, most of the, of the tenses of the verbs are all wrong. If they're all wrong, and it's obvious they're all wrong, and we all stand up and go, these should all be in the past tense, or in the present tense, and not in the future tense, and we're all willing to say that. Why is it so hard to look at three verses that are absolutely verbatim identical and come to a conclusion? And the answer is, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't like what it says. I know I didn't. Our next class... Oh, I beg your pardon? Uh, I was just, just going to say, going back to, so going back to the definition of biblical kosher, Versus rabbinic kosher, yes. or the other form of kosher. Yes. Uh, I know my current view is that biblical kosher certainly includes that. Yeah. But, but I'm coming to some. I'm coming currently to some other understanding that that would include certain other aspects too. Which we well, I was. I think I was just going to say Nick. that concept of. Trying to be honest with the text in its proper historical context. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, and not just as I was doing for so many years, going, okay, sweetie, next time you buy any goat, make sure we don't buy its milk. Well, I mean, its mother's milk, because <laughs> you're not going to boil that goat in that milk anymore. You know, that kind of deal. Yes, sir. Um, I haven't looked. Um, I would ask the same question of you. Are there any other references in the Tanakh that promote kashrut in general? 
because I think that it's, you know, uh, it's, it's just like the argument that we've got with Yeshua. Does it ever say that he prayed after he ate? Well, well, no, it doesn't. But we know he did. How do we know he did? Because the Torah demands that you do so. You know, the culture had that habit. Well, why doesn't it say he did? Because it was understood. Same kind of thing. So I would, I would submit that because there's no cash food references at all, you're probably assuming the same kind of deal. We're talking about kids and goats, and you, know, you never have anybody that's getting the swine or the, you know, the uh, great big, I'm sure they had jumbo shrimp that were probably you know, a foot, foot high back in those days. But, uh, well, the three texts that we're, we're dealing with that, were, that you exegeted in this study, yes. basically two of them are, are mentioned in context, the wider context, the broader context of the laws of sacrifice during the Feast of Ingathering or Sukkot. Yes. And there's only one Bickery. context that's mentioned on the heels of talking about Nebelah, the carcass, and when you shall give it to the foreigner, and in the context of eating, it finishes that verse, then it says, thou shalt not see the kid in itself, the mother's milk, and then it goes right on into, into Sukkot as well. Yeah. So I guess we're, if we're really focusing on it, it's passage you started with, yes. which deals with, it's on the heels of eating, and we kind of just kind of throw that verse into Kashrut and saying, you know, even if we look at it in this uh, you know, um, translation here, not to cook meat in dairy, yes. to cook meat in milk, it doesn't say don't eat meat in milk. Right, so you would cook it to throw it away? Well, I mean, it says don't cook No, but seriously, but would you cook it to throw it away? Why does anyone cook meat? Why would we cook it? Why does anyone cook meat? To eat it. Thank you. And if we're in the context of eating and we have a verse about cooking, I think we can go ahead and make the stretch that we're still talking about eating. But, again, um, I, my, my whole past several years was arguing against this whole concept because I didn't want to do it. It's as simple as that. I didn't want to do it, and I could not come up with any good reasons other than it only says it three times. Or, you know, I mean, come on, really. I mean, do, do, why would he have us do that? There's, I mean, there's no reason to do that. Well, now I'm looking for reasons. I, I just, again. It, yeah, but back to the cool question. So now you've got, you've cooked the meat, and you've got the dairy, and they're on the same table. And you not necessarily. You've just said that you've cooked the meat and the dairy, and you've got them on the same table. You said you've got them on the same table. On the same table. How did you do that? You brought them together. You're saying that yourself. You're doing that. That's not a biblical text. So, again. So, is that, is that biblically kosher? Now we're talking about halakha. And I think the question comes down to, and that's where I was going a second ago, next week's class. And next week's class is not going to be on kosher, but it's going to be on the sages. It's going to be on halakha. And why we should or should not listen to the rabbis. And I hope to give you some good arguments for looking at what the sages say at times with a jaded eye and at other times uh, in a different fashion. Because I think that uh, the scripture teaches us very clearly what we are to do. And in very few cases, it tells us how. And I would say that it tells us how 
when we are making sacrifices. The how for most other commands is not listed. It's the what, not the how. And the sages spent the vast majority of their days coming up with the how. So in this case, we have the what. Don't do this. Well, how does that affect my life? Now what? And the how is what the sages came up with. So next week, I'd like to talk about that and how we should deal with that. Maybe it's not quite as generic as I always listen to the sages unless they've had too much wine, which I've said before and I think is still probably true. The question is whether or not I can determine whether they've had too much wine. Or I should reject rabbinic halakha at all costs. Who does that? The Karaites do that, right? If they said it, well, it can't be right. I'm going to do anything but that. Or somewhere in between. Well, if it's somewhere in between, how do we determine? So we're going to talk about that next week. That's next week's class. Um, the sages and halakha. Okay? I appreciate your um, patience with me as I've uh, tried to go through this. I did not do it uh, justice uh, for, uh, for what the topic is worth. Um, this uh, biblically kosher book is uh, available from First Fruits of Zion and uh, this is uh, an add-on to it, a visual exploration of biblically kosher and uh, it's got some of the coolest pictures in here Uh, in fact, it's really sad because as you're walking through the biblically kosher book, it really starts to get you very hungry um, because you're seeing all these really cool donuts and and, and foodstuffs, and um, some of it is just magnificent. So you don't want to read this right before dinner, um, but it's great. And this is just the uh, visual exploration uh, booklet that goes with the book itself. Um, as usual, there was uh, two very strong points on uh, Gentile observance, number one, and number two, um, Jewish identity, uh, that I found extremely offensive because I don't believe any of that uh, junk. Um, but other than those two little paragraphs, I thought it was an awesome, uh, awesome book. And uh, we didn't even get into bugs, guys, and what to do when you find bugs that we know we're not allowed to eat um, in, your, uh, in your vegetables while you're cleaning them off. So you can pass that around, take a look at that. And uh, I've got the book in the other room, so I'll bring that up for you. Last comments, last questions, last anything. And you know, you're more than welcome. God bless you.